Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I don't know how many of you uh, enjoy good mystery novels or if you're a reader. I happen to be one of those people. I'm a reader. Um, I'm not particularly fond of television. I will watch a movie every once in a while. Uh, So you, you might put it into that category of things where there's a good mystery and you don't really know who the protagonists are and who the criminals are and all of those kind of things. Um, But very often, you know, one that I would point out to you that I read a long time ago, The Ezekiel Option by Joel Rosenberg, has this incredible storyline. You can't really get it figured out until the end of the book. It doesn't really make any sense until you get to the end. Now, some of you, now, I wouldn't do this, but some of you undoubtedly turn to the last chapter or two and read what's going to happen before you're supposed to get there, I think. Well, that's kind of the way the Bible is. The Bible actually gives us the end of the story. So we have some information that the original authors didn't have. We have some pieces of the puzzle, if you will, and none is more mysterious than this man named Melchizedek, marvelous, wonderful Melchizedek. And the author here now spends these next 10 verses talking about this guy that's mentioned exactly twice in the Old Testament, once in Genesis chapter 14, the other time in Psalm 110. And other than that, we know very little about him. But he obviously is very important because we find that Jesus and he are somehow linked. And so as we look at these first 10 verses, I pray that you will be Uh, In for a little bit of a mystery novel today that we'll do some research and kind of think through some things because this wonderful Melchizedek uh, is a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus. And so would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the incredible accuracy and the depth of your word, how you in history past pointed us towards what you would do in the future as you sent your own son into this world, that the world through him, through Jesus, would be saved. And I pray if there's someone here today that's struggling, Lord, they don't have that sense that they have a high priest in heaven. Lord, maybe they've been looking to people here on earth to fill that void. I pray that your spirit would set us free to worship the one true king. Lord, that we would have you as a center and focus of our attention. Speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For this Melchizedek, and you're going to see two words here that if you know a little bit about Jewish history, you know they don't belong together in one single person. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Now, why is that? Bizarre. 
Why is that strange? Why is that weird? Why is that not okay? Because this book was written to predominantly convince Jewish believers to rest and trust in Messiah, in Christ. And so, in order to understand this, you have to have the background of Judaism. In Judaism, you could not have someone who was both priest and king. It was an impossibility. Because the priestly line was the line of Levi through Aaron, the first high priest, and the kingly line is the line of David, Judah. And so, you have two different tribes, and Pretty obviously, you can't be a male born of both those tribes. You can only be born of one of those two tribes. And so the Jewish people understood that there would be one person who would eventually come who somehow would mysteriously link together righteousness and peace. Peace would come together in this one ruler who met Abraham. Verse 1 continues returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. That meant that he tithed to him. People sometimes will debate with me, well, tithing isn't found in the New Testament. Well, tithing doesn't need to be found in the New Testament because it actually predates both Judaism and the New Testament. And so this is a picture of Abraham uh, paying a tenth of all that he had uh, to, to the worship of the man who was the priest and the king. Notice what it says, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And notice who he is, without father or mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains priest continually. The most important question you're ever going to answer while you're on this earth is who is Jesus? That's it. That is the seminal question for every human being. Who is Jesus to you? And so we have a picture here of the deepest typology that exists in all of the Bible with who Jesus is. Because he is the king of both peace and righteousness. He has the right to rule over your heart because he's made peace with God and he's brought the righteousness of God. No ruler in Judaism could do that. And so this picture is one that the Jewish people would have been going, what do you mean? He's both the king of peace and the king of righteousness. He's the prince of peace and prince of righteousness. You see, they understood that the prophet Isaiah said he would be the prince of peace. They understood that he'd also bring about an eternal kingdom. He'd be the father of all eternity. They understood these things, but they had never seen anyone do both of them. And yet, that is the story of what we find in the life of Jesus. That Jesus came to both rule over the hearts of men. He is our king, amen? And by the way, he's our coming king. He's coming back again. So he is the rightful deed holder. He's the ruler of heaven and earth. But he's a ruler in righteousness. And while our world may be in turmoil, the Prince of Peace is not in turmoil. 
He knows exactly what he plans to do. And so this beautiful picture that's here for us is one that we're going to see uh, enumerated on as we continue through the book of Hebrews. In chapter 7, we, we find that this priesthood of Melchizedek, which links us all the way back to the original high priest Aaron. Um, Aaron was, was a good priest. You know, he was a good high priest, but he was far from perfect. And there's going to be one that will come and link these two offices together of king and priest. It's going to be way better than Aaron ever was. Way better. By the time we get to chapter 8, we're going to see that the Old Testament, Old Testament covenant itself is replaced. By the time we get to chapter 9, we're going to see that the sanctuary, the temple, gets replaced. And by the time we get to chapter 10, we're going to see that the sacrifices that the priests actually made are made complete in Jesus. So this is the beginning of this kind of doctrinal section here in the middle that says Jesus is just plain better in every measurable way. You see, the Jewish people had learned to lean very heavily on the high priest. They, they leaned on the rest of the priests for intercession. Literally, the priest kind of took over. And so when you came to the temple, you, in essence, turned over your ability to be right with God to them. They were the ones that offered sacrifice for you. They're the ones that took that sacrifice uh, into the holy place. And then the high priest is the one that took the blood sacrifice into the holy of holies, literally to meet with God. So... There was a mediator, and that mediator was a man. That man was imperfect. And so as Hebrews kind of unfolds all this stuff for you, you see people had been depending upon people. In essence, their faith was in a man. And we have an awful lot of people who still follow that model. I will tell you right now, I am not your priest. So please don't call me Father Jeff. <laughs> your prayers work just as well as mine do, and you can go straight to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords yourself. Amen. Amen? Jesus ended that need for a mediator. He took what was in the Old Testament necessary, and he made it actually unnecessary by becoming that high priest of heaven himself. And instead of him being here to talk to us, he's there talking to God. You see, the priest used to go in and do his best to try and talk to God for you. Well, Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father, ever making intercession for you all day, every day. Amen? And so this central theme of this book now begins to unfold for us. And it's just simply the superiority of Jesus. Everything that the Old Testament law and the sacrifices and the feasts and all those things that were designed by God, by the way, to point people to Messiah eventually, it, we begin to see how they fell short, each one of them. And most of the time, the reason that they fell short was they were people. The priests weren't perfect themselves. The priests needed a mediator as well. And so while they're mediating for someone else, they themselves needed mediation. They needed somebody to go for them. 
And so we're going to see that Jesus is superior to the prophets and Jesus is superior to the angels and Moses and Aaron and the priesthood of Levi's. And you can just go Levi and go on and not the pants, but the people. The better, he's a better covenant, a better, all these things just unfold. Why? Because just like the Jewish people leaned on their Jewishness and very specifically the law, we can start to lean on our religious activity. Pretty soon it's, well, I pray better or I pray more than that person. Or I go to church six times a week. Or, you know, I have a one-year Bible. And by the way, all of these things are inherently great with God. If you're going to church six times a week, chances are you're going to be hearing a lot of the word that's good for you. You should be in And chances are when you pray... You want to be praying more, not less. Amen? You're supposed to pray without ceasing. But you see, what's happened with the Jewish people is they began to just set a rigid schedule of things that they needed to do to be right with God, and they just checked boxes. It was no longer that they were actually had a relationship with God. They simply were religious. And people love religion. Religion is actually easier than relationship, isn't it? It's totally easier. It's just like, if I, if I give you ten things and you need to do them and you're right with God, and I tell you you're right with God, those ten things then become a substitute, in essence, for your worship of God. And the Jewish people were doing that. So, well, we'll just go back to the temple. It was designed by God, so we'll go back there. Uh, as we begin this march through this central section, we actually end up with this picture before us in a way that is really meaningful for a lot of us. Many of us in this room come from some form of background with Roman Catholicism and the Pope and cardinals and the bishop and the priesthood. And probably many of you sitting here have been to confession. Why did you go to confession? Because you needed to go confess your sins to the priest so the priest could offer you some form of absolution, right? Can I tell you, the Bible doesn't teach that? It teaches exactly the opposite of it. That if you confess your sin, he, that would be Christ, is faithful, he's just, to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say you need a person to do that. Your prayers are just as effectual as mine. And so we can get religious. Why? Because it gives me an opportunity. Well, I can sin Monday through Friday. I can go on Saturday confession. And I can get that taken care of. And then I can go right back to doing whatever I was doing. And I'm trying not to be too negative here. But that, for a lot, a lot of Catholics, is exactly how they live their life. It's like I could do my own thing. I just need to make sure I go in and see the priest. And I'm going to be fine. Might get an extra 50, 60 years in purgatory, but I'll be good. <laughs> Bible doesn't teach these things. It says, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Yeah. Amen? There is no mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. You don't need me or any other human being to go to God for you. You can go yourself. 
you need to know this. Because if you start trusting in me, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And just think about it. Look around the room. Just, this is one of three services this morning. Now imagine that you're all waiting for me to go to God for you. Um, I am a human being. I have the same 24 hours a day that you do. I, I don't have any special way to, to take all of your things and, and pray over them. But Jesus, having an infinite mind, can take every single need in this room directly to God the Father simultaneously. Go yourself. He loves you. It's, it's crazy to me because there are some cults, and I'll just call it what it is. Mormonism is a cult. As far as the definition of a cult, it's a cult. It is not another Christian religion. Why? Because they do not believe that Jesus is God's only son. They believe that Jesus is one of God's many sons. And they also have a problem with this whole order of Melchizedek. In fact, they hijacked it. And the Book of Mormon plainly states that they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious. And they've taken away many covenants of the Lord. They have taken them away. So there was a restoration, supposedly, of the order of Melchizedek. So when you talk to a Mormon, they'll actually talk to you about the priesthood of Melchizedek, and only those who have it can baptize. The problem is, the Bible doesn't say anything about us having the priesthood of Melchizedek. It says that there will be one that will come that's greater than Melchizedek. Not that we need to restore the Melchizedek and priesthood, and in fact, throughout the history of the Mormon church, the Mormon missionary handbook actually indicates that the only ones who have authority are the ones who have the priesthood of Melchizedek. And yet the whole book of Hebrews is telling you, get rid of the priesthood, period. Because we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. He's the one that did away with the covenants that were given to the Jewish people as a way to relate to God. And so when you think about these things, you have to be careful because you can get caught up in things that God doesn't want you caught up in. You can end up with a hijacked faith yourself. So much so that the Mormons actually believe that there is a direct correlation between you being saved and the power of the authority of the priesthood. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if you call upon the name of any religious group. It doesn't say you need me or anybody else. In fact, I can tell you that I've talked to people all over the world that have come to faith in Christ. They didn't even have a Bible. The Holy Spirit directly spoke to them and they said, I don't even know who this Jesus is, but I believe. He's able. He's reaching and doesn't relieve us of the call of the gospel, the great commission, but it does say that Jesus himself came that we might be saved. Amen? And so if you go down this road that the Mormons unfortunately have gone down, you end up creating a cult. Because now you've got this intermediary person stuck back in the relationship. That's what the Jewish people had. 
That was the role of the high priest. Ultimately, the high priest was the only one who could go in and offer up actually a sacrifice for the sins of all of the people. God forbid. You don't need me. You don't need the Pope. You don't need a priest. You need Jesus. Amen? Faith alone, that's it. It's not you going to some person. It's you going directly to Jesus himself. So the background is what we have here for this Melchizedek there in verse 1, king of Salem. And as you look at this, this man, he actually is the first priest mentioned in the Bible. Sometimes we say it's Aaron is the first high priest, which is true, but the first priest mentioned is Melchizedek. Actually predates Judaism if you want to look at it that way. So you have Melchizedek being announced as a priest and someone, Abraham, paying tithes to him. So when you speak of Judaism, you speak it is of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? So until Jacob's 12 sons come into the picture, there's no 12 tribes, there's no Israel, because that's the collective name for all of them together. And so This Melchizedek predates all of that. It goes back before there was Judaism. And I think the reason the Bible does this is to put away some of these other things that we would get caught up in. Notice his name actually means king of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever thought about it, if you're the king of righteousness, you would have to have a righteous kingdom, wouldn't you? And... There's none righteous, not one. And so if there is a righteous one, we know who he is. His name is Jesus. So in that way, Melchizedek is a type or a picture of or an illustration of King Jesus. Because he's the king of peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the ruler of peace. In fact, when you have him, you have peace with God. Amen? So so Melchizedek was kind of pointing the Jewish people towards something that they actually didn't even have in Judaism. In Judaism, you never had a sense of final peace. And this is very important for us to understand because most of us here have no experience in Judaism. But in Judaism, you spent the entire year going through these festivals and feasts and offerings and all these kind of things to get to one single day of the year. That day was Yom Kippur. And so on Yom Kippur, theoretically, you had all of your debts squared away. And so on that one day of a year, which you waited the whole year for, the whole rest of the time, you didn't actually have peace with God. Why? Because your sins still remained. No sacrifice had been made for them. So from Yom Kippur in the year before to Yom Kippur this year, All this stuff is collecting in your account. And you're walking around with your bag of goodies. It's just like, well, I told that lie and I stole that goat. And I looked at that person and thought bad things. And I hit my brother in the face. And you just carried all this stuff around. So consequently, how much peace do you think you had with God? Pretty much none. Because nothing had been done about your sin. You owned it. You were carrying it around. And so when 
this king, Melchizedek, comes along, and now we have this picture of what Jesus would actually do. Jesus would combine the two offices of king of your life. So we say Jesus is Lord. Amen? To the glory. He's the ruler. Amen? That word Lord means master. So in that sense, when we say Jesus is Lord, his name Jesus, Yahushua, God is salvation, is Lord. When we say God who is salvation is Lord, we're relying on his role as Prince of Peace because he made peace with God the Father. His sacrifice squared away your debt. And so for the Jewish people, they were constantly in a state of upheaval. It's like, I don't really know. If I were to meet God right now, I'd have some issues. And so the background here is important for us. Notice he was without father. He was without mother. You know, we're told that Jesus, Mary, said that she was with child of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Matter of fact, that was the reason that Joseph was going to put her away. It's like she's pregnant. Um, It wasn't because of us. In the very same way, Melchizedek, we don't know anything about his history. We don't have a glimpse into heaven either. You know, people will ask, well, you know, where did Jesus come from? Jesus is. God's name is I am. Amen? That's the, that, that word that's put together that is Yahweh means I am who was, I am who is, and I am who is to come. It's the conjugation of a verb to be. He has always been, he always was, he always is, and he always will be. So he doesn't have a beginning. So here comes Melchizedek, who's the Prince of Peace, who doesn't have a beginning. We don't know where he went either. When the disciples saw Jesus disappear into heaven at the Mount of Transfiguration, all they had was the words of Jesus, I go to prepare a place for you. But they didn't have heavenly binoculars. Not like, you know, they weren't like NASA spying on a rocket. Like, oh, there he is. Yep, he's at the right hand of God the Father. So he had to believe by faith that what he said, he did. Because we didn't see where he came from either. And so these things are this beautiful picture to where the Jewish people should have been going, well, that's strange. Well, that's strange. That's kind of weird. That's unique. Oh, wait a second. That's what we believe about Messiah. And then Jesus comes on the scene, born of a virgin, disappeared into heaven, received worship. The background helps us connect the two places, the two offices, the peace that we find here. Remember what Jesus said when he was with the disciples in the boat and the storm came up on the Sea of Galilee? Jesus did not give them a lesson in meteorology. There's a hurricane bearing down on the coast of Louisiana right now. And you can sit there and you can read them, you, you can actually watch the weather map of this hurricane heading towards the coast. You can see the pressure bands. You can see the tidal surge. You can see all this stuff. 
Jesus in the, is in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He, he does not get out a computer and go, wow, the pressure's rising. It's now at 21.6 millibars. He looks at the storm as creator of heaven and earth and says, peace, be still. Amen? Why? He's the king of peace. He has command over everything and everyone. Church, we so limit the role that Jesus has in our lives when we fail to see who he actually is. Melchizedek was just a picture of that. You imagine Abraham walking up, you're, you're, the, you're the king of what? Salem is a, is a version of shalom, peace, salem. In fact, in ancient Aramaic, it would be salem. You talk to someone in Arabic, it will be salem, peace. Why? Because God alone can actually offer it and make good on it. I can tell you I'd like you to have peace. I can pray for it myself. But I have zero capacity to bring peace to your life. I can give you comfort. I might be able to speak to a situation, maybe give you a tidbit of wisdom. But Jeff has no capacity to bring peace to your life. Only the Prince of Peace can do that. So as they're looking at this role, they're going, wow, you know, who is this guy? The same is true for this tithe that Abraham gives. The tithe belongs to the Lord. It's always belonged to the Lord. It goes to his house. It goes to his work. It is for God himself. When you give to this church, you're not giving to me. Not one cent that's given here. I get a paycheck, just like all the rest of the employees. That's it. I have no access to anything. You're, you're not giving to Pastor Jeff. This isn't the Jeff Gill family business. You know, it, I don't have any control over those things, actually. I can make suggestions. Why? Because what we give, we give to the Lord. And I give with you. Because we want to accomplish God's purposes. You're giving it sans the human beings involved in it. And in the same way, that's what happened with Melchizedek, with Abraham. He didn't know where he was from, didn't know where he went, and he gave to him. Why? Because he was the prince of peace, and he was the king of righteousness. So our goal in our giving is to bring the prince of peace and the king of righteousness into view for absolutely everyone in the whole world. That's the good news that we share. That's the call of the gospel into all the earth, to go into all the nations and preach the gospel and teach them all things as I have taught you. That's the Great Commission. That's what the church is about. That's what Melchizedek presented to Abraham. That's why he gave to him. He said, look, you're about peace and you're about righteousness. You're my church. That's why church needs to stay focused on what we're actually here for. The church is here to preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus, to see them saved. And then righteousness comes into their life, and then peace with God the Father, it starts there. And then that peace spreads out into the world. No Levite could ever do that. No king of Judah could ever do that. 
And so in that sense, Melchizedek was greater than the kings, the tribe of Judah, and greater than the high priest, the tribe of Levi. And so Melchizedek showed them something that Jesus would actually fulfill. Pick up with me in verse 4 now as we look at the remainder of our passage before us and the significance of all of this, the significance of Melchizedek. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. So here's the picture. Where did the tithes go? They went into the church, essentially. The Levites represented God. They received the tithes. That's where it went. So here's Abraham giving tithes to this man, Melchizedek. That is from their brethren. Though they could have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all the contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Where do all of our blessings come from? Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father of lights who is in heaven. Amen? So it's always the greater blessing the lesser. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In other words, Abraham had had no sons yet when all of these things were revealed. And again, this is a fairly complex picture, but I think it's actually easy to see. Abraham was a great man. Make no mistake about it. But he was a man. Abraham was a great man, but make no mistake about it, he was actually a failure at times. Amen? So so when you look at Abraham's life, you see the Jewish people had so come to revere Abraham that Abraham was almost a god to them. Isaac, almost a god. Jacob, it's like we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in effect, they actually worshiped Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And everything about their history. That's how they're related. And you really can't blame them in the sense that that's what they knew. But Melchizedek was a type of something greater, something far more wonderful. Something unflawed. Something not made of the things of this earth. And church, that is what we need in our lives. Melchizedek wasn't a Levite. He wasn't from the priestly line. He had something greater than the priestly line. This is... For us, a way for us to relate to Jesus. Look, there's a lot of wonderful things about godly people. And I'll just use the term godly people. Men and women both. There are all kinds of people on this earth right now today that are doing wonderful things for the Lord, but they're not Jesus. And sometimes we get caught up in the worship of people. 
We get caught up in the cult of personality. We begin to, to think that there's an equivalency. Well, if I just serve that person, that, that that's the same as serving the Lord. No, you serve the Lord Most High and Him alone do you serve. Amen? Now, we get together and we do things together, and I have my role and you have yours, and we have some that are collective. But we have to leave God as God. And we have to get away from this mindset that says, I'm going to worship a person. I have listened in my time, in my decades of ministry experience, where people ascribe God to human beings. They'll even say things like, well, you know, he's the Lord's, don't touch the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed is King Jesus. That's the Lord's anointed. That's not a man. That's Jesus. No man in that sense is perfect. And we shouldn't worship men. We should worship Jesus. If you worship Jesus, you're going to be fine. If you worship me or any other person, you will not be fine. You're going to see me drive somewhere and you're going to go, oh, Jesus doesn't drive very well. Worship Jesus. Melchizedek may have been the first priest, but Jesus was the last one. And he's the only one that you need. When you think about this, and we'll see this actually when we get to verse 24 here in chapter 7, he is the priest permanently. There's a Greek word that's used there. It's used only twice in the whole New Testament. Aparabatos. And what it actually means is it's untransferable. Nobody else actually qualifies. It's not just permanent. He's one of one, the very thing that Colossians tells us, that he's the preeminent one. There isn't anyone like him. Melchizedek was just a window for us to look at his life and go, well, that's kind of strange. He predated Judaism, and everything about him was superior because he combined somehow the office of both priest and king, which Judaism couldn't do. It was pointing us to Jesus. It's making me long for my relationship with Jesus. And probably some of you are going, well, why should I even care about any of this stuff? Because having risen from the dead, Jesus Christ is high priest forever. Amen? He declared that himself. He said, I am the resurrection and life, and he who believes in me, yet though he shall die, you shall never perish. Amen? He's high priest forever and ever and ever and ever. It's not just kind of like, well, you know, go to that church, and as long as the pastor's on fire for the Lord, well, it'll be okay. No. Jesus won't let you down. We have a high priest that's constantly interceding for us. Did you know that Jesus is sitting right now, and I, you can visualize it lots of different ways. Do you realize Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father, and he's got his cell phone in his hand, and he's waiting for a call from you? Think about it. Think about it. He's like, I know Jeff's going to call me i got so much I want to do for him. 
Have you dialed up Jesus today? Because that's what he's doing. He's interceding for you. He's sitting right next to God the Father, ever making intercession. That's why you have peace. When the devil comes as a flood, when he brings those accusations against you, Jesus is going, oh, no, no, sorry. Uh Uh-uh, doesn't fly here. Got that covered. I took care of that at the cross, Dad. That's done. Tell him to take a hike, a long one. Be gone. You see, that's what Jesus is doing. And so when Melchizedek came on and he was he brought peace and righteousness. I only have peace when the righteousness of Christ is applied to my life. Otherwise, my sin remains and I don't have peace with God. This is the whole story of the book of Romans, by the way. That's what happened. That's transactionally what Jesus did. And how tragic it is that people think there's a if attached to our justification. There's an if attached to our salvation. There's an if. No, it's you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. The results of that salvation will take you a lifetime to implement. But if you have believed on his name, then you have peace with God. Mind-boggling. Don't attach something to it that can't save you. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Christ alone. And so this beautiful picture of this man who comes into our biblical view for two chapters in the Old Testament, a total of about 16 verses, is nothing but a picture of Jesus. A type. Typology. And the whole point is to point someone who might lean on the law or might lean on the priesthood or might lean on their giving or might lean on some other thing. It's to convince us to just simply lean on Jesus. If you lean on Jesus, you're not ever going to tumble. If you lean on Jesus, no one's ever going to snatch you out of his hands. If you lean on Jesus, your eternity is secure. If you lean on Jesus, you have everlasting life. So let's lean on Jesus. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer? And maybe you're here today and you've never invited Christ into your life. You haven't taken that first step. You've been leaning on church or maybe leaning on your job or leaning on some other thing. You can change that today. You don't need to be uncertain about your future. You can be absolutely secure that Jesus loves you. And that because he loves you and because you love him, that you have everlasting life. I want to pray right now, if you just bow your hearts and your heads. If you're here and you know the Lord, begin to pray. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, but you you want to square away your eternity, 
I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up right where you're at, and I want to pray with you to receive Christ. The Bible says if you believe in him, you'll be saved. Anyone at all? See that hand in the back? Praise God. Anyone else? You don't know the Lord, and you're not sure what would happen right now. You're not like my father-in-law who can't wait to see Jesus face to face. You're wondering what's going to happen if you take your last breath. If that's you, and you want to be certain, just simply raise your hand. Would you join me? Let's pray, and we'll pray for those who've raised their hand. Father, we thank you for these hands that are raised, and for those that have raised your hand. If you would just simply repeat after me, Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and that you are the only Savior. I'm tired of running and I want to have rest for my weary soul. Committing my life to you right now. I'm inviting you to come in and be my Savior and my Lord. I'm asking you to forgive my sin and to write my name in your marvelous book of life. Help me to serve you all of my days, to never wander. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.